Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, you know, just about a month ago, it was on a day not too unlike today. It was a beautiful, sunny day. So I decided I'd take my 57 Buick out for a pleasure cruise. And as I was uh, riding, rounding the corner on Sunset Boulevard, a car pulled out of the Goodwill parking lot and stopped across two lanes of traffic right in front of me. I had no other option but to just face it, and we collided. Yep. Well, we uh, thankfully, the other driver and myself were not uh, injured. We got the car on the cars on the side of the road, and you know, after I put the fire out in the engine bay, you know, we were waiting for the uh, tow truck to arrive and some other things. The other driver said a comment on, on how calm I was, and I was. You see, I love to work on cars. You know, this was a re-restoration project for me. And so while she was apologizing, I was thinking through, you know, all the things I was going to plan on doing to get this car back together. Now, while most of you would take the car, get it hauled off to the auto body shop, I don't want to have them have all the fun. So I had them haul it home. And I've been, you know, working. It's taken twice as long probably as it should but it's worth it. Now, you might not have a 57 Buick under restoration, but let me tell you, we all have works in progress under restorations. God is working in you too, uh, in a restoration to bring you back to original condition. It started the day you received Christ as your Savior and Lord, and it will end the day when you see Jesus in heaven. God alone does the work, and he's very good at what he does. Well, today we're going to be looking at one of the most captivating, compelling sections in what I believe all the New Testament when it comes to restoration. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And in it, we're going to find one of the most compelling pictures of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He's promised to restore you. Yeah. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this. I am sure that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, not only is God working in you, you know, individually to do that, but God is working in us as a church, restoring us, because the word you here, it's, it's plural. Yeah, God is working to restore us as a church as well. Well, here's what God envisions when the restoration's complete. Uh, Philippians 1.27 says just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together 
for the faith of the gospel. And just in case the Philippians miss it, he repeats it again in chapter 2, verse 2. He says this, Make my joy complete, that you think the same way, having the same love, united in one spirit and intent on one purpose. So do you get those? Here's what it looks like. We're standing firm. We're united. We're persevering. Even in the face of difficulties, you know, we are united in one spirit, in one accord, and we're thinking alike. And we're together united in one purpose, working together to bring hope and healing of the gospel to our broken world. Well, how do we adopt that kind of unity anyway? Well, the first thing that Paul identifies this, these rusty, crusty, sinful patterns of life that prevent unity, the first thing he identifies is, is selfish ambition. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Well, that's how we're naturally wired, really, is viewing ourselves. You know, I've heard it described this way, as, as myopia, my day, you know, my plans, uh, my work schedule, my play, my pain, you know, my money, my, my, my. We can even fool ourselves, really, into thinking we're doing something great for God and all the while keep ourselves on the throne. You know, um, I heard a, a story of a wealthy businessman in, in, in Boston he was known for his ruthless, unethical, selfish behavior. He once told Mark Twain, before I die, he says, I'm going to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And I'm going to climb to the top of Mount Sinai, you know, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And I am going to recite the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai aloud. To which Mark Twain replied, I have a better idea. You could stay in Boston and keep them. <laughs> you see, sometimes what we do, what we envision, really is the easy way out. It's much harder, isn't it, to stay and deal with the issues in our lives. So how does God deal with myopia? Well, he wants us to empty ourselves, of ourselves, really, and that process isn't easy. He'll allow us to have problems in our lives that will demand sacrifices, where we have to take ourselves off the throne of our life, you know? Well, there's a lot of different responses when problems come into our lives that we could have. Charlie Brown, you know, for instance, says, there's no problem so big, I can't run from it. <laughs> See, myopia can even happen in churches, you know, where we think we're doing the spiritual thing, and all the while, uh, myopia remains. Just a month ago, I was in my office, and I was studying uh, God's Word. I was studying the book of Luke, and the parable of the Good Samaritan, Pastor Nate actually preached from this uh, passage just a, a month or so ago, 
But I was really getting into the study, man, the word studies. I was getting into the structure, the context, the history, the background. I was having a wonderful time, and suddenly I was interrupted. There was a knock on my door, and Jordan Marsland opens my door and says, Barry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, there's a guy, I just thought you'd know, there's a homeless guy out. He's sleeping out on the uh, front porch outside uh, against the, the front door. Just thought you should know. And so since I was on call that week for, for those kind of situations, I got up, I went to the front door, went outside, and sure enough, there was this guy uh, you know, laying down uh, by the front door. And uh, so I, I said a few words, woke him up, said a few words, saying, you know, you're welcome to stay here. Uh, probably have to leave, you know, in a little while. And then I hurried back to my office and, and stayed, you know, uh, dove right back into the study. You know how the priest um, ignored this guy on the side of the road? And then the Levite ignored this guy on the side of the road. And then it hit me. The story was taking place in real time, and I was in it. I was one of those guys. I had myopia. <laughs> so I got up and attended to the needs of that fellow, gave him some food and spent some time with him. So, but why am I sharing this? Well, the good is the enemy of the best. We might not be robbing banks or, I don't know, coveting our neighbor's chickens or something, but we could even be studying the word of God and have myopia. You know, Paul goes on here to identify another area of brokenness in our soul, though. We have selfishness here first, and then he identifies pride or conceit. Now, the word here actually comes from the word which means delusion. It's another translation. It's translated vain glory or empty pride. It's, uh, pride can take, you know, many forms. Intellectual pride, we can be proud about our personality, our success, you know, our money, our position, our family. The list goes on, but the end is the same. It's emptiness. Take, for example, a person who prides themselves in wealth. James says this, he says, For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, it dries up the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. You know, you might say to yourself, well, I'm not rich, I'm not that smart, I'm not, I don't think I'm that prideful. You might say, uh, uh, I'm actually the opposite. I don't think I'll ever measure up. You know, I'll never amount to anything. Uh, everybody is better, I think, than me. Still, still, where is the focus? It's a form of pride, my opia. 
You know, I recently read this. That's why I shared it. We've been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of the redeeming and preserving grace of God, too proud to pray to the God that made us. How true. You know, how true today. The thing is, the words were given by Abraham Lincoln on a, in a speech in 1863. You see, the roots of pride run deep. They're not easily taken care of. How can we break free? Well, it starts with our thinking. Look at this. In humility, what? Consider, it's a way of thinking. In lowliness of mind, it says in another version, think of more others as more important than yourself. We correct myopia by thinking of others first. It says everyone should look not on his own interests, but rather to the interests of others so be thinking of other people's needs first. See their lives first before you see your own. For instance, when you see someone maybe in the lobby or in the checkout line or whatever it is, do you see their impending divorce? Do you see them struggling with an addiction, drugs or alcohol or some other do you see him struggling in a relationship or do you see him struggling with unemployment? Do you see a, a single mom who is struggling and exhausted, barely able to make it through the end of every day? See, probably not. But you know what happens? When we take ourselves off the throne of our lives and we put God there and others next, we begin to be able to see their lives in a whole new way. We'll set aside time that it takes to really be interested in the needs of other people. You know, there's no better example when it comes to this than the example of Jesus himself. Most likely, the words that we're going to repeat here are, are, the, are the lyrics, really, of a hymn that the Philippian church knew at this time. It's one of the oldest hymns ever recorded. So let me, let me just, uh, for example, uh, say these words to you. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. What are you doing inside? You're singing the words. Those of you who know it, you're singing the words that begins, you begin to recollect the song. And so, 
as we say these words in Philippians, that the church then, it would galvanize, ignite their hearts. And the words here would reach a depth like no other way. So let's go on. Verse, verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Get that? Well, first we learn here from this song, this hymn, that Jesus is God. Paul says here, being in the form of God. Now, the word form comes from a Greek word, morphos, from which we get the word, uh, English word, morphology. And it means the sum, the the, the care of all the characteristics and the qualities and the attributes which make a thing what it is. So being in the form of God means all of the qualities that make God who he is. Jesus being in the form of God has all of the attributes of God himself here. And he is, in the most clearest manner possible, Paul is expressing the deity of Jesus Christ. His essence, his substance is God. Jesus is the absolute expression of God to man because that's who he is. It's his nature. He was all this in heavenly glory, he needed nothing more to claim absolute equality with God. He didn't need to grasp anything more because he already was God. He always has been and always will be. Now note here, in this section, Paul isn't telling us uh, what Jesus once was, but rather what his intrinsic nature is. He is, he is not describing some past mode of existence of Jesus, no. No, he is telling us who he is and what he has done so we can appreciate the great things he has done for us. In other words, Jesus retained his deity throughout all of his life on earth, every bit. It was open for all to see it was no suspicion that, that Jesus was God. It says the disciples beheld his glory. Jesus was obviously more than a man. He was obviously God. He is the absolute revelation of God to man. Romans chapter 9 says, He is God over all, blessed forever. He is the Alpha. And he is the omega. Jesus is the word. The word was with God and he was God. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. 
All things were created through him, and apart from him there was not one thing that was created. He is the image of the invisible God, the one and only one of God. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He is the heir of all things who made the universe through him. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. He sustains everything by his powerful word. And of Jesus, God says this, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. In the beginning, you, Jesus, created the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He has absolute control over the laws of nature. He forgives sins. He raises the dead. He will judge the living and the dead. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He has the power to read the human heart. He accepted worship while on earth. Peter confessed, you are the son of the living God. And Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. He was worshiped in the earliest days of the church. He is called in Peter, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 John, he is our true God and eternal life who has come in the flesh. And Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And this Jesus Truly God left his heavenly glory and majesty and became a man. Jesus became a man. We read in verse 7 here, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of humanity. He came as a man and was thoroughly known in his life on earth, he got thirsty and tired. He hungered. He died as a man dies. Now, Paul doesn't teach here that, that our Lord Jesus was once God and, and instead became a man. No. Paul is teaching here that though he were God, he also became a man truly man in every way. And by becoming man, this doesn't mean that he divested himself of his Godhead. No, he didn't relinquish any of his deity. So he became a man. And not only did he become a man, he became a servant. He could have chosen a lot of different roles in life, but he chose the role of a servant. We see here that he emptied himself. The word here is, is a metaphor, to empty. It's used in other places in the New Testament uh, in the same way. He emptied himself in this way. He took the form of a servant. He made no account of himself. A slave back then was deprived of even the most basic human rights. And in the same way, Christ refused to exploit the privilege of his deity, and he gave up that right and became a servant. He emptied himself. 
of his self-interest. In him there was no myopia. He didn't look on his own things. He didn't look on his own place of majesty and glory with the Father in heaven. He didn't cling to that. He had no regard for himself. Instead, he became a servant. No, notice here. You know, Paul uses the same word as he did earlier, the word form. Jesus took the form of a servant. Now, now remember the word form. It means those characteristics, those qualities which make a thing what it is. No matter how you view it, you get, you get the, what it is. And Jesus came as a servant. He didn't masquerade as a servant. He didn't put on a show or an act like he was a servant. He became an actual servant in reality. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet at the Lord's Supper, it was the most natural thing he could do because that's who he was. That's who he came as. He came in the form of a servant. Mark 10.45 says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He whose right it was to rule took on servitude and obedience in his life, as his life characteristics. But you know what? He stooped even further to obedience even to death. Even death, it says, on a cross. You know, uh, back then, crucifixion was so repulsive that the Jews couldn't even do it, the Romans did it, and it was so despicable that people would not even utter the word. It was said in Deuteronomy and later repeated in the New Testament, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And yet Jesus went to that depth for us from his majesty in heaven to a man, to a servant, to obedience, even death on a cross. For God so loved you that he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave his only son. But whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friend, if you have never believed in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I'm asking you what more could God do to prove his love for you that he hasn't already done? May now be the day, let, let today be the day when you say what we're gonna read next, Jesus is Lord, that you would say that today for the first time from your heart. Because the song continues, for this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this Jesus 
dear friends is the one who has humbled himself and is now exalted. And God is calling us to that same path today. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Yeah, it's the path of a servant. Jesus says the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If any man serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serves me, my father will honor him. Follower of Jesus, do you really want to be like Jesus? Then follow him. And the path starts with, with taking yourself off the throne, giving God first place, others second and third. And if you choose to do that, and, and friends, there are so many of you here. Highlands is known for your sacrificial attitude and love. Maybe you're caring for a loved one right now, a friend. You're sacrificing yourself. Do you know what's in store for you? Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you in due time. And it will end with the words, you'll hear from Jesus himself saying, well done. Thou good and faithful, what? Servant. So humble yourself. Not easy. Be content with third place. You know, inscribed on the tile outside our door here, almost where that guy was laying, are the words here, enter to worship, depart to serve. Yeah. Let that be inscribed on our hearts today for everyone here who leaves. And if we do that, Highlands, we are well on the way to restoration because this, and get this, it's the humility of Highlands that will bring hope and healing of the gospel to our broken world. It's the humility that we show to others who's going to do that. It starts with you, our lives, personally, and the life of our church. Let's pray. Lord, there's somebody here, maybe online, Lord, that has recognized for the first time you gave and gave and gave for them. There's not much, there's nothing more that you could ever do that you haven't already done for them. Let today be the day when they pray this prayer. Lord, I need you. Thank you for giving yourself, emptying yourself for me. I need you. 
I receive you. Thank you for your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness in life. I want to be made a new person. I want you to restore me. And Lord, for those of us who are serving, give us that perseverance, even in the face of difficulty, to keep serving, no matter how hard it may be. And today, Highlands Community Church, we pray that Philippians 2 will be our favorite hymn. Father, let this song arise in our soul, motivating us long after my words are forgotten. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.